Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, you may know I've always been a big fan of one hit wonders, and one of Canada's best examples of that were four guys who worked their way up through the Southern Ontario bar circuit back in the late 70s to record a 1980 album with legendary producer Bob Ezrin. The band is The Kings. The tune is called This Beat Goes On, Switch It to a Glide, and they're with me to talk about the track, how it got written and made, appearing on American Bandstand with Dick Clark the years that followed, and much more. Daniel Levy served as peace negotiator under two Israeli prime ministers, and he joins me to offer his assessment of the war in Gaza and what lies ahead for Israel and the Palestinians. The murders of a 41-year-old man and his 11-year-old son in broad daylight last Thursday in Edmonton in what police call a targeted shooting has sent shockwaves across the city, the province, and beyond. Police say the father was well-known, in organized crime circles in the city. But that level of violence and targeting a child has stunned even detectives. We talk to a former gang squad officer from Vancouver about what happened and the fears that it will lead to even more violence in the future. But first, it's a top 10 list you probably don't want to find yourself on as a vehicle owner. The list of the top 10 most stolen vehicles in Canada is out. The Honda CRV uh, has occupied top spot for yet another year, the second year in a row. A list mainly made up of newer model SUVs, pickups. And it comes as stats show another record year for vehicle theft in this country. What can be done to turn the tide? We find out. This is a top 10 list you probably don't want to wind up on if you're a vehicle owner. We're going to begin with the list of the top 10 most stolen vehicles in Canada for 2022. The Honda CRV retains top spot for the second year in a row. It's followed by a whole bunch of other popular SUVs and pickups. Uh, there's only one uh, car in there, the Honda Civic's at number six, but Around that, the Honda CRV, the Dodge Ram, uh, the Ford F-150, the Lexus RX, the Toyota Highlander, you get, you get the hint about what's being stolen and why. And of course, the most popular models are all 2019 and newer. It comes as vehicle theft rates in this country. We've been talking about this on the show in the past, uh, are way up. They're way up. The rates are up 50% in Ontario and Quebec. The list was compiled by Equité Association, a private insurance industry association, which compiles the data from Canadian law enforcement agencies and insurance records. Again, vehicle thefts in 2022 hit historical highs. Um, and this organization, actually the organization, and this is a fun list, have released the least stolen vehicles as well, the least stolen vehicles. So if you want to make sure that your car won't vanish, the Chevy Volt, imagine, just one was stolen in all of Canada in 2022. Uh, Sid Kigma is Director of Investigative Services for the Western and Pacific Region at Equité Association, and he joins me now. Sid, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. This is always a list that people pay a lot of attention to, uh, but I guess the big news here is that this unfortunate trend of vehicle thefts in this country, the, 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 the spike in vehicle thefts continues. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, we'd really like to see it from year to year to start to decrease, but we just the, the numbers just keep rising and, and the problem just seems to be getting worse instead of better. Which are the, I mean, I was mentioning some of the vehicles that are targeted. I mean, year in, year out, it tends to be SUVs. It tends to be newer SUVs and pickups. Um, and, and it's the same story again this year. Yeah, yeah, for sure it is. They're the most popular. And, um, you know, we're, you know, the Honda CRV number one on the list again. You know, worldwide, it's, it's a very serviceable vehicle and popular. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just on the list of uh, 
call it a shopping list of the bad actors out there that are, you know, stealing these vehicles and sending them across seas um, and exporting them out of the country. Yeah, that's what's going on here, right? I mean, as far as I could tell, reading through the press release and some of the reporting on this, this is very much, as far as you know, organized rings that steal to send, to steal to export, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. It has been. Um, they're they're sophisticated. Um, they need to be sophisticated to uh, steal these this the newer vehicles, and uh, that's exactly what's happening with them. They're exporting them out of the country, um, and as well domestically, they're they're also revinning them basically that's just giving them a new identity uh covering up the fact that they're stolen and then selling them to unsuspecting buyers in canada right how does it work i mean you mentioned that the thefts were way up in quebec and ontario are you seeing that right across the country or does do those two provinces really stand out yeah those two provinces really stand out i think alberta's rate is at about 18 percent, still up um one of the concerning other concerning trends we see in alberta is that the recovery rates of vehicles is going down so Generally, you know, a uh, vehicle stolen and is recovered, um, unless, of course, it's exported, like we talked about earlier. Um, and those recovery rates are coming down in Alberta, meaning that uh, we're starting to see the same problem in Ontario and Quebec uh, in Alberta now. Maybe you said walk me through a bit about how the average Honda CRV uh, leaves, you know, gets stolen and, and what happens to it once it is. Yeah, like if. Uh, generally, what we're seeing is, um, you know, if it's stolen um, in Quebec and Ontario, uh, their proximity to the uh, Port of Montreal, Halifax, is close. So um, the vehicle gets stolen and loaded with uh, some other vehicles into a shipping container and head through, say, the Port of Montreal to, uh, you know, the destination wherever the uh, bad actors, um, you know, are, are shipping them to, whether that's in the Middle East, Africa, those type of places. And uh, yeah, so it gets on the ship and goes to those ports, and then once it's it, once it's through the customs there and into those uh, countries, then um, you know that's uh, really hard to get them back. Given the logistics involved, and it, you mentioned this as well uh, with the release of this of this top ten, is that this is by no means only a vehicle crime, right? This is this, these are groups that have many other interests, and this money mightn't be going to places. Uh, this is not just about vehicles and selling them. No, exactly. It's, you know, the vehicles are a commodity for these organized criminal groups, and uh, it's a very lucrative business that they're in, uh, but it also helps support um, the other businesses they're in. And, and, you know, some of it can even be related back to some terrorism. Given how much we know about them, um, it seems, what do you think is behind the fact that uh, these numbers continue to climb? Because clearly everyone's aware of what's going on. And yet year after year, in the past while at least, these numbers continue to go up. Yeah, I think it's just that global demand for our, the Canadian vehicles, and um, you know they're 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 just highly in demand, and there's there's a lot of them in uh, Ontario and Quebec, and uh, that's that's continuing to drive the the problem. Um, you know, and and no one can really solve this in isolation. It, you know, it has to be the manufacturers, it has to be um, you know our, our federal standards, and the lawmakers, and even you know the criminal justice system has to all get involved and uh, in order to you know reduce the problem. Yeah, I wanted to get to some of the solutions, both for individual vehicle owners and for this for the system more broadly. It was interesting. What was the decision to release the least stolen cars this year? Because I guess if you're looking to comparison shop there are some uh there are some out there that are clearly not that attractive to to thieves yeah this is the first year we've done that and uh so yeah we're interested in people's feedback on it because 
traditionally this has just been sort of a bad news list or a list that you don't want to uh, be on or uh, your vehicle to be on. So I want to bring a little bit of good news to it and just, uh, um, you know, send out to Canada what uh, the least the least uh, stolen vehicles are. So uh, better news if your vehicle's on that list. Yeah, walk me through that one a bit because I was reading down the list and there are some SUVs in there. I mean, there's a there's a Cadillac XTS, there's a Volvo XC90 that are both SUVs that happen to be on the on the least stolen list. And of course, there are EVs on on that list. And and I guess the reason for that is pretty straightforward. Yeah. So uh, in developing that list, I mean, we had to kind of come up with some parameters. So we just we wanted to make sure there was at least ten thousand of those vehicles insured on the road. So that was sort of our minimum um, threshold for that. And then, so once we had that, then we could start to look at, see the fewest numbers of those being stolen. Um, so, you know, if you compare in comparison to some of the other vehicles on the most stolen list, you can see that the number of uh, insured vehicles on the road are, you know, uh, in the tens of thousands versus the hundreds of thousands. So there's a lot less of them on the road, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Right. It's a question of numbers, I suppose, as well. But the EV thing was interesting because uh, it, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. A lot of the places where these vehicles are winding up don't have EV infrastructure, so they're useless. Yeah, that's just it. Um, until that infrastructure is there, I think uh, you won't see as many of the uh, EV vehicles being stolen to be exported to those type of uh, countries. I was surprised maybe to see, I think the Mini Cooper Countryman is on there as well. I mean, these are, and, and obviously the Cadillacs and the and the Volvos, these are attractive vehicles. Yeah, I guess there's no, there, there aren't as many on the road, clearly. Uh, they aren't as popular cars as the ones that end up on the top 10, or vehicles rather. Uh, is there anything else there behind those? Is, is there different systems, uh, different anti-theft things in place? I, I, I guess not. Yeah, no, I'm going to say that uh, there's not because uh, there's some of the same manufacturers um, on on the least stolen list as there is on the most stolen list. So I'm going to say that, you know, their security systems are going to be very similar, um, if not the same. So security measures are, are are very comparable. It's just, it's the number of the, you know, the number of vehicles that are on the road, as well as maybe they're just not as, as popular or in demand in, in the uh, countries being, that are being exported to. Yeah, those Japanese vehicles tend to be pretty easy to service. I remember time, times in Afghanistan and so on. I mean, there are Toyotas and Hondas absolutely everywhere, right? Oh, yes, for sure. Sid Kigma is with us this half hour from Equite Association, talking about their annual top 10 most stolen vehicles in the country list. They've also released a different one this year, the least stolen vehicles. The champion on the stolen side is the Honda CRV. The least stolen is the Chevy Volt. We were explaining some of the reasonings behind that. Sid, one gets the impression that this might be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that if a country is seen as being an easy target, it becomes an easier target, or at least it's targeted more often. Is that part of what we're seeing here? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I, I can comment on that, uh, Ben. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm not sure what's what's really driving it, just besides the bad actors out there that, um, you know, it's, it's a lucrative market and and um, you know, there's probably a variety of reasons why why Canada is targeted, um, and uh, yeah, I, I just think we need to try and somehow close the loop on that. Yeah, the cost must be felt by all, obviously. Yeah, well, this is the first year where we've actually exceeded a billion dollars um, in value in those vehicles uh, that have been stolen. So wow. it's a that's a pretty significant number. If you're a vehicle owner, what should you be doing? Well, we always like to talk about the layered approaches and, and just, um, you know, as many layers that you can put um, on your vehicle to try and prevent theft, the, the, the 
hopefully the more success you'll have. And that's, you know, that's simple things like, um, you know, if you have a garage, park in your garage versus your driveway. Um, if you, if you don't have that, you know, park in a well-lit area, um, you can use, uh, like you might think of it as old school, but steering wheel locks are still actually quite effective. You know, there's other immobilizers you can use. There's, um, OBD two port locks sort of to prevent the, uh, the, the key cloning. Um, and, uh, you can put uh, tracking devices in that. Now that doesn't necessarily prevent the theft, but it helps with the recovery if your vehicle is stolen and, uh, and maybe the speed in which it's recovered. Anything you're seeing now sort of on the technology side that people should be more aware of that they might know of? Um, well, I think the, uh, like, there's methods of the vehicles being stolen where um, signals are being stolen from your keys because, you know, in this in this uh, in this time we like we love our luxuries and you know those push button starts on our on our vehicles are very convenient, uh, but in order for that to work, the, the key fob has to talk to the vehicle, and that signal um, can be um, hijacked by the bad actors, let's say. So to protect your your key fobs you could put them in what's called faraday bags um as well if you go on google and with your certain key fobs there are uh, ones that you can just disable that um, frequency while while you're not using your vehicle and then and it's quite easy to re-engage it when you need to use your vehicle i think it's always considered a bit of a victimless crime uh, for, for rightly or wrongly uh, are authorities taking it seriously enough do you think i mean they're stretched already we know uh, but are authority, authorities taking this seriously enough, given you've you've crossed over that billion dollar in losses, Mark? Yeah, well, you know, we we really are trying to uh, bring uh, more attention to it. You know, we're, we've been asking um, Canada Public Safety that uh, to to put more resources at our ports um, in Montreal and Halifax so that they can inspect more of the containers and and really stop the export of the vehicles because they're really under resourced there. And, um, you know, if we could get it added to the, commo- the commodities priority list for um, Canada Border Services, it, you know, behind drugs and gun inspections, um, that would be a, a really big help because the auto theft is actually fun- a funding mechanism for drug and gun trafficking in our communities. Right. Um, so if that's, that's one of the things we can do. And then, you know, another thing we're, we've been asking uh, Transport Canada um, to update uh, Canada's federal motor vehicle safety regulations by adopting uh, more recent and updated safety standards. Because uh, back in 2007, when our current standards were actually first adopted, considerations back then were, weren't given to like push button start vehicles. And, and that's where the criminals are really taking advantage of the outdated standards. Right. Always looking for those loopholes. Sid, uh, as always, hopefully next year's list uh, shows some, some move in the right direction. But thanks for your time. Okay. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. <laughs> is a case that has been absolutely shocking and one that no doubt, I mean, obviously shocked Edmonton, but the, the feeling of it was, uh, it was felt far beyond just the city, the province, right across the country. Police today have issued a new appeal there for information, um, and they also formally identified an 11-year-old boy who was shot and killed alongside his 41-year-old father last week. Harpeet Singh 
Upal and his son Gavin were killed in a vehicle at a gas station in the city's south end. And police have said from the outset that they were both intentionally targeted, an 11-year-old boy intentionally targeted. Um, An 11-year-old friend of the son's was also in the vehicle, but he was not injured. Here's what Acting Superintendent Colin Dirksen of the Edmonton Police had to say not long after the murders last week. These two were father and son. EMS responded, however, both father and son succumbed to their injuries on scene. There was another child in the vehicle at the time who was the same age as our deceased boy. He was unrelated to that father and son, and thankfully he was unharmed physically anyway. These reckless actions show all too clearly that the landscape has changed out there. And uh, and this, this really bugs me. There's no longer any respect for children, families, innocent citizens amongst our rival organized crime groups, our gangsters, when they carry out violence to further their own interests. Dirksen said a suspect vehicle was found on fire not long after the crime. They've released images of the suspects and of the vehicle in hopes of generating some tips here. Of course, as he was mentioning, uh, it's believed the father, the 41-year-old, had ties to organized crime, uh, that he was a Brothers Keepers gang associate, that according to reporting from Post Media, and that this uh, came a day after the Toronto slaying of another uh, Vancouver gang member. Uh, Of course, the scene around where the murder took place has become a memorial uh, to father and son, but specifically to 11-year-old Gavin with stuffed animals and notes left behind and so on. And just, it's one of those um, incidents that reminds you of just the scale of gang violence in this country. And uh, the fact, as as, um, Colin Dirksen was pointing out, uh, just the lines that seem to be crossed. Now, Doug Spencer knows this world well. He's a retired Vancouver Police Department gang squad unit officer, and he joins me now. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're more than welcome. Just your reaction to, to, to what happened at Edmonton last week, because I think people are, are legitimately floored by the fact that an 11-year-old boy would be targeted, regardless of who his father may be. Yeah, it's, that world has been on a spiral down for the last dozen or so years. We've seen you know mothers get shot in front of their uh, five-year-old kids in Surrey and just pathetic. They have absolutely no morals. These guys to to kill a kid like that is uh, I just can't comprehend it. And you know, I think payback will be really fast. Like the whole gang community, these guys are out there breaking the law and doing stuff. They some of them have kids, and I'm sure right now they're looking to get whoever did that back because they're all going to pay for it. Yeah, that that was the concern too. Not just this violence, but that this that you talked about a downward spiral. That the downward spiral continues and accelerates after this particular incident in Edmonton. Yeah, no, for sure. There, there was a fourteen-year-old kid shot and killed. I think there was five murders in six days or something out here, and uh, one of them was a fourteen-year-old. My understanding is he was completely involved in it and a number of shootings and stuff, but still. The ages are getting lower and lower, right? Tell me a bit about, I mean, there was reporting over the weekend about connections to another murder that happened in Toronto. What's going on? I mean, we hear the term gang war, but it's very hard, I think, for other than sort of to picture how it unfolds in movies and so on. It's very hard to understand exactly what's happening and why an 11-year-old could be considered to be fair game in a world like that. Yeah, you know, in some cases, they're actually... uh, glorifying and living out some of these movies and rap videos and stuff they see it's just ridiculous right 
the Vancouver gangs are extremely international. Uh, you know, I've talked to uh, police gang police officers from Australia, Thailand, Singapore, all through Europe, you name it, right? Um, it, it, basically, Vancouver has really good marijuana, and they traffic it all over the world. So it, it's international. There's been a number of gang members flee from here because of stuff they've done. And they go end up in Toronto or Montreal, and they get blasted because they're constantly looking for one another. Right. I mean, this has obviously has all the hallmarks of a gang of a gang killing with the burnt out car and so on. I suspect police agencies right across the country must be talking to each other about this and also preparing for the fact that if the violence escalates, we don't know where. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, <clears throat> like I say, it, it's across Canada and the world. We've had uh, Regina police got in touch with me a number of years ago and about some drugs getting coming out from Vancouver to there, getting trafficked in Saskatchewan. And uh, we went and did a search warrant out in Burnaby and got a bunch, a whole bunch of guns and assault rifles and, and money and stuff from this apartment in Burnaby. And of course, where did it all lead? Right back to the Hells Angels, right? So like there's a pecking order and basically the higher ups, the Hells Angels and such, they import the drugs and then they give it to the street gangs to distribute wherever. So it goes globally. Right. When you look at uh, at what happened at Edmonton, though, I mean, again, just the, the fact that uh, you talked earlier about how this has been a downward spiral already. Uh, you, it struck me. I mean, I remember being in Quebec during the biker wars uh, and the explosion that killed an innocent bystander, a young boy, was, was the tipping point, was a tipping point in Quebec. And you wonder sometimes if an event like this will be a tipping point as well. That uh, I'm wondering whether law enforcement needs more tools, whether they need a more concentrated way of, of going after these gangs, because clearly in these cases if an 11 year old is targeted it, you get the you get the sense there are no rules yeah no certainly you you have to get what we did a, a number of years ago when we had the famous bindi joe hall and all those murders i think there was 50 murders in four-year period we got a special gang prosecutor in vancouver and he handled all the gang cases so i would go and give evidence showing this person to be a gang member and they would get whacked with sentences that are twice as the norm. So, I mean, you have to do that. You have to get judges on board to start keeping these guys using firearms in jail. In Vancouver, there's guys with two or three firearm charges, and they're still getting bail. That's ridiculous. Yeah, You must have encountered people involved in that life. Uh, when you confront them with 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 the violence, what do they say? It's part of the game. It, it's like a board game they're playing or a video game. You have to do this. If somebody shoots your guy, you have to shoot them, right? You can't get pushed around because if you get pushed around once, the gangs will all push you around, right? It, it's this kind of street cred mindset they have. You need credibility in the street that if you mess with us, we'll mess you back, right? So it's all quite glorified. And, you know, we've had young guys in Vancouver, they made a rap video about it on YouTube, right? And 
they're trying to glorify their reputation and enhance it so nobody will come and mess with them, right? Why did the Hell's Angels wear a patch on their back? They don't want anybody to mess with them. So, you know, they it, it's a really seedy world. And, uh, you know, when I do talks with Odd Squad to school-age kids, I tell them that almost every homicide I've investigated, which is hundreds, somebody in their own gang either set them up or sold them out. Yeah, in, in this case, I, I mean, I, you know, the, the father was 41. He was well-known, obviously, according to Edmonton Police. He was well-known to be involved in organized crime. But I, again, I, I just I can't get past the, sh- the, the targeted shooting of an 11-year-old boy sitting in a car with his father. It feels like there is no code of honor anymore in, in that world. Yeah, no, for certain. Uh, and the, I think that there's... It's not just the rival gang they have to worry about, the guys who did this. They have to worry about everybody because all the rest of the gangs are going to answer to this. They don't want the police on their case. They want to make money and stay below the radar, right? So uh, if they, I, I know in Vancouver, one, a guy did a really bad homicide and shot a, a girl, and three or four different gangs pooled their money together and put out a contract on the guy, and they killed him. Because they don't want the heat, right? Tell me a bit about the gang, the Brothers Keeper. Uh, Brothers Keeper. I, I'm not, I wasn't. I mean, I, I've heard the name. Obviously, living out west, Brother Keeper, the Brothers Keepers gang, uh, and the United Nations gang. Obviously, that comes up a lot. The Hell's Angels. I think we, people are familiar with the names. But what does that association mean for someone in Edmonton? Yeah. Again, they're they're global, right? They're local guys. Uh, I dealt with a number of them selling drugs around the Sky Train out in Surrey. And they've got this tattoo in their chest. They're posting pictures of themselves on Facebook and all this stuff. Well, they, they posted one picture where they're all shirtless with the tattoo in, in sight. And that picture they posted, four of those guys have been murdered. Right? So they're stupid enough to advertise what they look like to the rival gangs. It's just idiocy. Right? And this... This really bugs me. There's no longer any respect for children, families, innocent citizens amongst our rival organized crime groups, our gangsters, when they carry out violence to further their own interests. That's changed in the, in the wrong way. And that's a trend that can't continue. That's Edmonton Police Acting Superintendent Colin Dirksen talking about a murder that happened in his city last week. A father and son, a 41-year-old named Harji Dupuls and his son, Gavin, 11, uh, were shot and killed in broad daylight sitting in a car at a gas station in the city's south end. An 11-year-old friend of the son's was in the backseat. He wasn't hurt. Uh, We're speaking with Doug Spencer this half hour. He's a retired Vancouver Police Department gang squad unit officer. Just about, I mean, there are obviously ties to gangs outside of Edmonton here. This is not solely an Edmonton problem. Even if this incident, this horrific incident happened in Edmonton, it's apparently connected to other things that have happened over the past while, including in Toronto and in Vancouver. Um, Doug, I I imagine police forces are coordinating on this, that right away they'll be talking to each other and bracing perhaps for some sort of escalation after this happens. Oh, yeah, certainly. You're always conversing. Edmonton will be calling out here to talk to the the Vancouver gang <clears throat> officers, because they know Mr. Apple and stuff, right? So, um, yeah, they'll share information, maybe uh, start some projects, get some funds, 
funds or what drives investigations like that can take a year, two years and stuff. So, um, you know, that that's kind of feet on the ground stuff. But like to turn this around, you have to teach these young up and coming kids what's waiting for them. Right. It's not glory. It's not gain. It's misery. And, uh, you know, that's what we do at Odd Squad. We go to school age kids and we tell them, you want to know what's going to happen? This is going to happen. And we get ex-gang members we interview and we let them tell them because they've been there and done that, right? And uh, live by some miracle through that life. In this, I mean, when you look at what happened here, um, I, I wonder, is there, are there connections? Are there, are there conversations that go on between police and members of these gangs to sort of, to try to settle, to, to cool the situation down before someone, someone else's child gets, gets hurt in all this? Yeah, I've talked to a number of guys when it was really out of control in Vancouver. I remember talking to uh, Bob Green one night. Who's a, he ended up getting murdered himself, a hell's angel in Vancouver. And I says, you know, you guys are all going to wear this. You're, you're killing people out in the middle of the public and putting everybody at risk. It's not good for business. And he turned to me and he says, I know what you're saying, Detective Spencer, and I'm on it. That's all he said to me. And I, I knew what that meant. Uh, you know, it's I'm not trying to promote anything here. I'm just saying... Yeah. Those guys don't want that heat. They don't want guys killing family members. A lot of them, like I say, have kids themselves. What's your, I mean, with your experience, what's your best guess at at what's happening here and how this could, how, how this possibly could have been approved and then done? Yeah. You know, a lot of these guys use their own product. So they're high on dope. Um, they're trying to climb up the ladder as far as status within their group. Um, when they do those real out there kind of things like this, they hope it's going to cause fear that nobody will mess with them, right? Um, they're trying to send signals out to people, hey, if you come after us, we'll do this to you too, right? So, um yeah, it's a bunch of goofy bravado back and forth, and unfortunately, this poor kid's caught in the crosshairs of it, right? It, it's pathetic. It, you know, there's been five wives or girlfriends of these guys murdered out here in the last six years. So to shoot a mom in front of her kid, I don't know how you get worse than that. How do you, I mean, I guess this is the never-ending question, but how do you make it stop? Because these, these gang wars flare up and then awful things happen and people are shocked and then they die back down again. But, but clearly you can't have any cycle of violence that involves uh, the shooting deaths of an 11-year-old boy. Yeah, I mean, to turn it around, you just got to basically cut off the recruitment pool. Right, if you get young people educated and conscious and aware of what the ramifications of their a bad choice like joining a gang can be, you're going to have less and less of them joining gangs and hopefully the numbers will go down because these leaders and stuff that are running these gangs, they're cowards. They won't do it themselves, right? So hopefully that'll slow things down. But uh, it seems that there's always a kid out there that's 
lacking in something in their life. They have no love at home or, or uh, role models or whatever. And they let the gang become their family unit, right? Which is just deadly. And as you mentioned earlier, the fear now is that the cycle of retaliation starts and it just gets worse. Oh, yeah. It, it'll certainly get worse. Like I say, uh, this kid from Langara, the South Asian kid, did this documentary years ago, and he, he chronicled the 50-something-plus young South Asian males that were killed in a, like a three-year period. And, uh, wow, it was a powerful documentary to watch you know, for me, knowing the background. But what happens, he ends up getting killed in a neighborhood dispute in Surrey a couple of years ago. It's just mind-boggling. Well, Doug, thanks so much for, for shedding some light on this. It's been, uh, I think, for anybody watching from the outside who doesn't understand the world, it's just been a real shocking event, and, and hopefully the violence ends there. But as you said, you're not optimistic at this point. Thank you so much for your time tonight and your insight. Yeah, and have please have people reach out to us at Odd Squad. We'd love to come and talk to their kids at school and educate them about this stuff. Right. You said that's where that's where the solutions lie. Doug Spencer, thank you so much. You're more than welcome. It's time to talk to a journalist who's doing interesting stuff this week. We thought we would stay in Edmonton in the last half hour. We were talking to a former Vancouver gang unit officer about uh, about what his his take on this horrific murder in Edmonton last Thursday, a 41-year-old father and his 11-year-old son shot and killed while sitting in a vehicle at a gas station in the south end of the city. It's believed to have been gang-related, uh, both are believed to be targeted uh, murders. Uh, they found a burnt-out car uh, afterwards, so they're still on the hunt for the suspects in this case. There was a new appeal for information today, but it was an absolutely horrific incident, and people just left shocked by the idea that an 11-year-old boy could be targeted. Another friend of the boy's was in the backseat. He was unharmed. Again, His uh, the father, uh, the 41-year-old, uh, um, was is believed to have, have gang ties. He was known uh, in organized crime circles in the city of Edmonton. Uh, here's, again, what Acting Superintendent Colin Dirksen of the Edmonton Police Force had to say not long after the murders. These two were father and son. EMS responded, however, both father and son succumbed to their injuries on scene. <clears throat> there was another child in the vehicle at the time who was the same age as our deceased boy. He was unrelated to that father and son, and thankfully he was unharmed physically anyway. These reckless actions show all too clearly that the landscape has changed out there. And, uh, and this, this really bugs me. There's no longer any respect for children, families, innocent citizens, amongst our rival organized crime groups, our gangsters, when they carry out violence to further their own interests. The victims in this case, uh, Harpeet Singh Uppal, his son Gavin, uh, just 11. There's been a memorial set up, uh, stuffed animals and so on, in front of where it happened. Dave Breckenridge, Dave Breckenridge is the editor of the Edmonton Journal, Edmonton Sun, host of the 10-3 podcast, and he joins me now. Welcome back, Dave. Thanks for having me, Ben. This has been a, a real shocking one. I can't imagine what it's been like in Edmonton proper because I think the moment people saw the news and found it very early on that it was that this appeared to have been two targeted killings, including that of an 11-year-old boy, uh, it was just hard hard to fathom. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a shocking crime when, whenever you have gunplay like this in a busy shopping center. It's just, it doesn't just go for Edmonton. It goes for any city across the country. People expect that they're going to be safe when they're out getting gas when they're out 
getting a coffee at Starbucks when they're out getting lunch. Like this happened within spitting distance of two drive through, no, three drive through restaurants was right outside a gas station, um, middle of the day. And I think it rattled the whole community. I lived actually not far away from where this all played out and I work from home. And so naturally being in the news business headed out to the scene and it was kind of, kind of shocking to see it to see it all play out uh so close to home and I, I you know i try not to sensationalize or 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 make light of of incidents like this and when i when we see news coverage we always think well for the most part the public is is generally safe when we talk about organized crime violence that typically it is targeted but it happened in a very crowded place and the fact that an 11 year old boy uh, when they realized that the son of this man was was also at the scene, decided to kill him too, is just chilling and and disgusting. Yeah, you could hear it in, in Acting Superintendent Dirksen's voice. It's not often you hear officers speak like that in the heat of the moment. I mean, he was he was he was angry. He was upset about this. He was, and I mean, this came not barely ten days after <laughs> about 10 days, I guess, after um, there was another targeted shooting at a, in a residential community, a stone's throw away from where this happened um, early in the morning and a house was targeted. Uh, they eventually caught someone in, in that case, but this is just one of those, those things where, you know, the, you fear that there's going to be retaliation for incidents like this, as there tends to be. I lived in Calgary during the height of, of its big gang war between two Southeast Asian gangs. Um, and it, you know, the violence didn't seem to let up for a long period. And, and there, I can imagine there would be fears among police that, you know, this is potentially the start of something fairly dangerous. Um, what, what, I mean, there's been a new appeal today, I know, for information, uh, at least to, to catch these suspects. But as you mentioned, I gather that that's just part of what police will be worried about here is not just finding whomever was responsible for this, but also trying to make sure that this doesn't spiral even further. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the people, the people who are involved, like somebody knows something. As you said, the police today, they, they put out another appeal asking for tips. They re-released video of a person of interest at the scene. Um, and, you know, we, we would hope that civic-minded people, individuals out there would, would put their hand up and, and pass information along to police. But as, you know, as we often know is the case in, in cases like this, that information doesn't always come from the public. And there's a lot of investigative work that has to go on in the background because the code of silence is, is an important one in these circles. Just the community reaction to it. I mean, I, I obviously living out in BC, we're you know familiar with gang violence in Vancouver. You know, it happens in other parts of the country. Obviously, I grew up in Montreal during the biker wars. That was you know that was always front and center. Uh, I hadn't heard much about gang violence in Edmonton over the years, at least not the kind of of crime that would that would I mean, quite frankly, kind of shock a nation when this kind of thing happens. I mean, when this happened in Montreal, when a young boy was killed accidentally, by the way, in, in a car bombing, that kind of set off the, the, the fight against to bring down the gangs in Quebec. Now, it, it wasn't you know, forever successful, but they put a lot of people behind bars very quickly when they put their mind to it back in the, in the, in the, late, uh, in the late 90s and early 90s. Yeah, and I, do, I remember the, 
the biker wars in Montreal as well. And, and the one thing I, I guess I'm kind of surprised by, I know, I know there's a memorial, a makeshift memorial at, at the scene of the shooting with tributes written to um, the boy who was killed. But aside from the police, to be honest, I'm almost surprised that there hasn't been a greater outpouring of, of outrage, I guess, um, because a, a young person was killed. Um, there hasn't been the same kind of, Group speaking out like there was after after the boy was killed in the bombing in, in the bike wars in Montreal and and I don't know what it would take for for a larger segment of the city to to turn around and say hey we won't tolerate this but I mean I think one of the things that that may make people kind of turn a blind eye to it in a way is the fact that this kind of violence is not new to Edmonton it certainly isn't new to Canada and and over the years you know people are it takes a lot more to shock people than, than an 11 year old getting killed. And I mean, it's a sad, sad thing to say, but you know, I fear that perhaps that's where, (laughs) that's where Canada is as a country at this point. Yeah. I I mean, it's hard to, to know what would have to be done to prevent that from happening. I mean, it, it, it seems to violate just about any, any, any code of honor you could imagine. And yet here we are. And the thing that I kind of get, hung up on when I think about this case is last Thursday. And if, if this child was a student in the public school system in Edmonton, I don't know for sure that he was, but if he was, it was a day off school. So had this been another day, had this been a Wednesday, had, had the school not been on break, he may not have been in the car at that time. The fact like, and I get hung up on that because again, I have young kids and they, you know, they were off school and, and just the thought that, you know, if he had, if it hadn't been a break or, or it had been a different day, he may not well have been in that car middle of the middle of the day. Cause this happened just after noon. Right. And, and typically the kids would have been getting back to classes in, in Edmonton public schools at that point. Yeah. With the friend in the back seat, that makes sense too, that, that the, mm-hmm. the two of them, the two of them were out for the day where now, I mean, police have been, issuing a lot of appeals for information very quickly, I find. I mean, oftentimes it takes days before they'll come back out with another appeal. It seems like in this case, they're sharing information as fast as they can, uh, as quickly as they can to try to get some sort of hint out there. I mean, we know there was a burnt-out car found. I don't know how far away that is from the scene, uh, but a burnt-out car was found, which is, the, you know, the hallmark of these sorts of, uh, these sorts of murders. Uh, but police have been very, very active in trying to get, to get any kind of lead uh, in this case. I assume that they may have ideas as to who's responsible, but you're right. They want people to come forward and say, like, I saw this guy and he got in this vehicle and he drove off and that's the vehicle that they found burned out. And it's not very far away as well. Probably the same maybe five-minute drive to the scene where it was burned out as is the the five-minute drive to the, the scene of the previous drive-by shooting in Edmonton. And I'm not saying that this these killings and that drive-by shooting are related, but... I mean, it speaks to their the potential for for violence in in this part of town, and and the these uh, groups may have ties to the community, and and I, I mean, we wait and see what happens with the police investigation, but you know, as as is the case in many of these these crimes, that you know, while they're appealing for tips, they're not saying much. We know so far that you know the victim potentially 
has ties to BC organized crime groups. This wouldn't be the first uh, fatal shooting in Edmonton where the victims had ties to BC organized crime groups. There was one nearly seven years ago, also not far away from where this happened, where two young men were found dead in a truck um, and they had ties to uh, an Abbotsford gang war and they had, they were an associate of a BC gangster who was murdered in Thailand. I mean, these, these, the, the drug uh, pipeline between BC and Alberta is apparently very strong and there are ties between people in Edmonton, people in Calgary and, and organized crime groups in the lower mainland. And I, you know, I'm curious to see if the investigation leads that way. Yeah, Justin Trudeau got quite the welcome in Vancouver last night. He was uh, in BC for an announcement yesterday before heading off to the APEC conference in California today. Um, uh, Dave Breckenridge is with us, the editor of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun, host of the 10-3 podcast. Uh, he was chased out of one restaurant, then he was uh, sort of harassed out of another bar afterwards. Police had to be called. There was an altercation with police forces and so on. Dave, I don't know about you, but I, I always feel like, listen, it's hard enough to attract good people to politics and this is regardless of what you think of our current prime minister to harass people when they're out for dinner i just think is always doesn't matter what politician it is to me it's always a step too far yeah i mean it's one of those things where i i i don't know what the protesters were hoping to accomplish with swarming him while he's dining out or swarming him at the restaurant, I, you know, I was reading that there were 250 people and there were a hundred cops that had to be called to the scene. I don't know what the end result is that if that's going to sway him, make him change his mind. I mean, but on the flip side, I've, I'm a big believer in the freedom of association, regardless of uh, whether I agree with your views and, and these people have a right to go out and, and show their, show their displeasure with the prime minister or with politicians. But as you say, at the same time, it's, you know, they're out eating dinner and, and it, it, it's a potential safety risk. Crowds can always be unpredictable. I, I, for me, it was, it reminded me of other instances with the prime minister during the 2021 election campaign, when he was constantly followed by people who were upset with him over um, COVID-19 measures. And, you know, the the Freedom Convoy supporters, those kind of that mentality. And it led to people hurling rocks at the prime minister. And there is that potential in any large group for all it takes is one person to do something stupid and you can have a real mess on your hands. Um, And so, you know, in this crowd of 250 protesters, they may the vast majority may have been peaceful, but all it would take is one of them to to pop something off. and, And then you have a problem on your hand. And then you have the potential for injury, not just to the prime minister, his security detail, but you're talking about a restaurant uh, in Vancouver that I imagine had other diners in it that that had nothing to do with the prime minister. And there's the potential for harm for them as well. So (laughs) I I would tend to agree with you that, that when you start talking about protesting like that, it's one thing to go to his office or go to his cabinet minister's offices and stage a large protest, but to swarm a politician like that when they're out for an evening, I feel like it is a step too far.
Yeah, I, I mean, I, even on a during the campaign, and and some of the behavior during the campaign was 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 reprehensible. But even when they're on the campaign trail, they're politicking, right? I guess I mean this might be completely naive, but I always feel like when they're not politicking, you need to allow public officials to have private lives in this country, or you're going to end up with the people you don't want in pub in, in public life. And I, that's what worries me when I see things like this happen. That's true. I, you are right that you know he's out. You know he's he's out enjoying quote-unquote his private life he's not doing a political event but you look at even some of the political events that the prime minister has been um swarmed at and it's forced them to in, like potentially justify tighter security it, it forces a politician's office to potentially not announce where they're going to be right um yep. you know there there was i believe it was in southern ontario in in july that protesters were calling justin trader justin trudeau a traitor um, a criminal, a pedophile, and, and yeah, it's it, it and he just I mean, he said to cancel yeah. walk cancel walkabouts because of that, and and the question is like, what does that do for the transparency of the office of the prime minister, where they have to you know potentially be less open about where he's going to be and be less open about where what his movements are, because people want to, in a sense, have access to. The prime minister and he has fans in this country that want to see him and shake his hand and meet him and tell him what a great job he's doing from their point of view and and i think that protests and people that swarm them at events and it and out for private dinners i think put some of that access at risk right i have 30 20 seconds favorite one hit wonder if you've thought about it dave crazy by narles barkley from oh, that's 2006 a good song. i believe yeah great song Great That's groove, great, great baseline, love it. Great, great one. Uh, Dave, as always, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Uh, well, speaking of Justin Trudeau, Benjamin Netanyahu, the, the Israeli prime minister, really took him to task uh, yesterday about his take on the on the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, today, Christian Freeland was out defending what the prime minister said. A reminder of what uh, Justin Trudeau said when he was in BC before all this stuff happened at night, uh, before he, as he was heading to the APEC Leaders Summit in California today. I have been clear that the price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Even wars have rules. All innocent life is equal in worth, Israeli and Palestinian. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. Benjamin Netanyahu is quick uh, to take to social media to say it is not Israel that is deliberately targeting civilians, but Hamas, uh, and he pointed out to the atrocities of October the 7th. He said, while Israel is doing everything to keep civilians out of harm's way, Hamas is doing everything to keep them in harm's way. And today, the opposition leader and centrist, Yair Lepid, echoed many of those same sentiments. It came on a day when the UN Security Council finally adopted a resolution calling for urgent humanitarian pauses in that war. Um, but what chance is there for those humanitarian pauses or even a ceasefire? Does it make sense? Would it just allow Hamas to simply regroup? I was really curious about what the path to any eventual peace, it feels so distant now, might look like here. And what better person to talk to than Daniel Levy? He's president of the U.S. Middle East Project. That's an independent policy institute advancing dignified Israeli-Palestinian peace. But he also served as a peace negotiator during the Oslo B talks under Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and the Taba peace talks under Prime Minister Ehud Barak. And Daniel Levy joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Good to be with you, Ben. Thank you. 
Daniel, we, we've seen, uh, I, I think, a change of tone uh, somewhat coming from both the White House, uh, again, from the Canadian Prime Minister yesterday, uh, a, a slightly more, uh, well, maybe impatience is, is the right word with, with, Israeli, with Israel's campaign in Gaza right now. You've been watching this since the beginning, more than 30 days now. Uh, what have you made about, about the diplomacy coming from the West and how it's, and what do you make of how it's shifting, perhaps? I think it is shifting. I think there was initial shock as to the events of October the 7th, which was understandable. I think it's a shame that we had allowed things to get to the stage where October 6th was as bad as it was in terms of a neglected, failed effort to be serious about peace, but October 7th was shocking. I think there was an increasing realization First of all, that Israel did not have a plan. It was going into this with a military, but without a political plan. That's kind of characteristic of the absence of politics that preceded this. Secondly, I I think people simply saw what we've all been seeing in terms of, okay, day one, day three, day 10. What's going on here? Israel is acting in a way which doesn't seem to discriminate between combatant and civilian. And then there were all these statements by Israeli leaders, which basically committed to a level of destruction. And then the death toll rises and rises. The child death toll rises to over four and a half thousand. And I think people say this is unbearable. We cannot stand by this. And public opinion kicks in in many places as well. This becomes a very divisive issue inside many Western democracies, We see varying degrees of public mobilization around this. We also see a huge problem for the West vis-a-vis the rest, because the rest of the world says, hey, wait a minute, you're the guys who've been standing up preaching international law and rules-based order to us. Uh, What about what's going on here? This is really bad. Why aren't you trying to stop this and this is your ally who's doing it and people have looked at this and seen the risk of regional contagion that this could become a much broader war so i think there was an expectation that either israel would get those casualty numbers down or that they would have a plan for how to wind this up and we haven't seen that and therefore i think the quiet diplomacy continues to be where america is mostly at but the public diplomacy has shifted as well. But it feels like this may be a, little, a story of a little too late in the day. And now we need an off-ramp. And there might be one. What does that off-ramp look like? Because you have very prominent voices in the U.S. and elsewhere, including the likes of Hillary Clinton, talking about the need to defeat Hamas, that Hamas cannot be a reliable partner in peace. Um, And you have others obviously calling for many, I mean, the UN Security Council today, calling for humanitarian pauses. You have all these different voices seeming to say somewhat contradictory things. And I think it's just as lay people, it's hard to make sense of what messages are now being sent. What do you think an off-ramp might look like then? Well, I think What people want to see first, chronologically first, is this dialing down to a place where we are not going to see scores of dead children, 
every day. This intensity of devastation, of bombardment, of destruction is going to be finished with. I think there are different tendencies, competing tendencies as to what should come next. In terms of what comes next in Gaza, that's going to be very challenging, hugely challenging, because who would want to take that over? This hellscape of total destruction. But how do we get to that stage? How do we start with ending this? How do we get to a ceasefire? I think the narrow path runs via the issue of the prisoner release, the hostage release, Mm -hmm. the 200 plus Israelis being held in Gaza, the negotiations being mediated by Qatar. You've had just a few days ago, the Mossad chief, the head of the Israeli intelligence agency, the CIA chief, Bill Burns from the US, in Doha together, meeting meeting with the Qatari prime minister, And I think what they're negotiating is a several day, people are talking five day cessation of hostilities to allow for a significant prisoner release for significant ramping up of humanitarian aid in. There may be some exchange if this is going to be civilians, perhaps women and children being held in Israeli prisons may be part of this. Now, if you could get that going, then the idea would be you build that momentum. You push for there not to be a return to the kind of devastation we've seen now. And you demonstrate that the prisoners, the hostages that are being held can come out alive. And you base an assumption on this kickstarting a different dynamic inside Israel, that there will be more of a demand to prioritize the release over the um, continuation of the military mission. And, And I think the Israeli leadership understands that. Netanyahu is dreading the morning after, because that's the day of reckoning. That's when the commissions of inquiry and everyone asks, how how do we end up in a situation where so much of the military was in the West Bank, not paying attention in Gaza? Where was the failure of intelligence, etc.? He doesn't want to get there. So he's holding out because he knows, I think, that if you kickstart a, a several day cessation, if you see people coming out, then the dynamic will shift. And I, But that is probably the way forward. It's going to take greater American assistance. And then, of course, the key thing is we don't go back to the status quo ante. We don't let this fester and blow up because we are likely to see more regular intervals of really nasty violence. The pressure inside right now, because we've spoken with families uh, of hostages uh, over the past month, and there is clear demands that that. The hostages come first, and I think we've seen in the sort of the rhetoric from from the Israeli government that that that, that they've put them first. Uh, but you, but what you're saying is that 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 instead could be used to leverage peace, not more war. Well, they haven't put them first. It was a choice before the Israeli ground incursion. The mediators, and this has been widely reported now, the mediators had reached a package that could have been agreed, and Israel chose to go with the ground incursion. The ground incursion has endangered the lives of those being held in Gaza. Unfortunately, not all of those who were alive at the start are are likely to be alive still today. Israel knows that it won't. Hamas is not simply going to say, oh, okay, here you go. That's not how these things work. They are held for a reason. They are held as leverage. As inhumane as that is. You need a negotiation, the negotiation is happening and now it has to be agreed. 
I think Netanyahu and some of his leadership may well get there. They're trying to have more time. I don't think because they think they can eradicate Hamas. That's again, that's just, we're being, we have amnesia about history to think that that is how these kinds of things end. Maybe they they think they'll win the lottery ticket and get the heads of one of the major leaders of Hamas tomorrow that they didn't manage to do for the last 40 odd days. So that's what they're hoping for. And, and they're trying to build a, a narrative of victory. There's a divided, if you listen to the discourse in Israel, it's divided. Some are saying, yes, significant degradation. You know, we've captured Gaza City. So if, if they're looking for that narrative, they probably have it, which means there's an opening to end this, but we're not there yet. I was reading today that trust in Benjamin Netanyahu, at least his in his uh, reporting of events in, in this whole crisis, is about four uh, percent. So clearly, there there as you mentioned, there is a day after to come at some point uh, for the current leadership in, in in Israel. You've sat across, you've worked on peace in the Middle East for a very long time. You've been involved in two uh, very thorough initiatives to try to bring it to reality. Uh, could all the, the the horrific things that have happened over the past month and a bit? Do you feel like this? there could be any light at the end of the horizon here for peace, for those who think if only this awfulness leads to some sort of long-term resolution clearly to this problem? It's very hard to summon up that optimism at a time where we see such devastation. I will say this. A disruptive event of this order of magnitude can play out in unpredictable ways. Now, we have seen the terrible dehumanization. It's been mutual. There is a very important power asymmetry that we cannot forget when you have an occupying powerful state and a people who are stateless and occupy. But you could see things move in surprising directions. And I think that's the thread we have to pull on. The thread we have to pull on is, is this the moment where people realize that going back to thinking in this way that if you punch them harder, they will finally submit. It's not going to work. And if you're in zero sum, if it's either them or us, that's hell for everyone. So I do think it will require Israel's friends to not continue down the path where we indulge Israel's worst instincts. So impunity has taught terrible lessons to the Israelis because they think they can get away with anything. And then the extremists drive the politics. And I don't think you could have characters like Ben Gavir and Smotrich in government were it not for the impunity accorded to Israel. So I think its friends have to act responsibly towards it. I think the Arab states will have to swing in behind the Palestinians in a more meaningful way to offer some heft there and to try and bring the Palestinians to a place where they can challenge Israeli impunity as well. And we're going to have to be open-minded. There are over 700,000 Israelis in the territory that would have to be Palestine in a two-state outcome. Is it possible to go back to that? Is the whole paradigm of partition now consigned to history? Is that a good thing? Because if we have to think about living together, maybe we'll humanize each other. Is that an impossibility? I think we have to go into this with one North Star. And that North Star is 
Israelis and Palestinians need to live with both peoples having their rights, having their security, having their dignity. Right now, neither have security and Palestinians don't have rights. They live in a system which has been very credibly detailed and documented as, as meeting the legal definition of apartheid. So the North Star has to be that can't continue because it's not going to bring security for either people. And then where do we go with it? And you'll need to have the kind of commitment to serious politics, not just rhetoric, not just suddenly saying, oh, there needs to be two states, but serious politics, which has been dreadfully absent. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you. You know how much I love a good one-hit wonder, and there's perhaps... In the list of greatest Canadian one-hit wonders, The Kings has to be one of them. That, of course, is a segue song. This beat goes on as the first part, and then Switch into Glide, which is always the one that I remember better, is is the second part. But it was a huge hit back in 1980 when it was released. And Bryce, David Diamond, The King, Switch into Glide, I owe everything to him. You'll be happy tonight because David Diamond is here with us to talk about it. Uh, we also had Steve, uh, not exactly a one-hit wonder, but Prism's Young and the Restless, Young and Restless, rather, was pretty close. In the Summertime by Mungo Jerry was another one. Yeah, those are two good ones as well. We've been talking uh, tonight about, um, we've been talking tonight about, uh, oh, Rick, sorry, Rick at Abbotsford. Those, those, you sent those in. So those are, those. Are, I always like that Prism track. That's a really good one, uh, by the way. I think I'll listen to that again tonight. And maybe we'll, we'll try and play it for you. But those were, uh, those were the Kings. And of course, they started off as just a bar band in Ontario in 1977, Southern Ontario, most of them are from Oakville, one member from Victoria, and they just played and played and played and played. Um, but for bands that are really known for one big hit, Canadian bands, the Kings are way up there. It spent 23 weeks on the U.S. Billboard charts, has made numerous top 100 Canadian singles of all time lists. Uh, it earned the band a 1980 Juno nomination. Uh, the Toronto Star called it the almost official song of Toronto in 2018. It got them an appearance on American Bandstand. And a lot of it was down to a chance encounter with perhaps one of the most famous producers this country has ever produced. In 1979, uh, the Kings were paying to record their first album on their own dime when Bob Ezrin, happened by the Nimbus 9 Studios in Toronto, where he had worked with a lot of artists, including perhaps most famously Alice Cooper. He had just come back from producing Pink Floyd's monster album, The Wall, when he caught the Kings playing at the studio. He liked what he heard and offered to help them out. The result, again, was that tune and a whole album, of course. It went down as one of the great early 80s new wave rock tracks, it's been covered countless times since. It was a big hit on radio right across the U.S., but especially in the Midwest for some reason. It even became the Milwaukee Brewers' unofficial anthem for some time. Uh, the band is still recording, still touring, and still playing that one track that almost all Canadians, you may not recognize the band's name, but you'll definitely recognize the song Zero and uh, David Diamond, co-founder of the Kinks. Join me now. Thank you both so much tonight. I appreciate it. Hello, hello, nice to see you. Happy to be here. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it, it, it's time just flies, you know, because I'm at that age now where I hear a song that was written in 1980, and I think, oh, wow, well, you know, that must be a couple of decades old. Then <laughs> I realize, no, it's it's older than that. What have you been up to? What, what The band is still together, obviously. You're still playing, and, and the song, I mean, the song lives on, right? Well, if you go back from how long it was to 1980, from 1980 before that, it's before World War II. <laughs> yeah, you're listening to like, you're listening to Percy Faith and things like that, yeah. 
1937 for guys. <laughs> yeah, that's a long we've time. Been, uh, we've been uh, playing a lot. Um, you know, we did a lot of shows after the Switch in the Glide time frame. Played a lot of big shows, opened up for major acts like uh, uh, Eric Clapton, the Beach Boys, uh, Bob Seeger, um, Gary Newman, the Cars guy. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Beck, I remember the story about Denver. You've told that story before. Yeah. So, and then a million little bars and uh, outdoor content for festivals, summer festivals, and um, and a lot of playing in rehearsing and writing songs. Yeah. I still do that. It, <laughs> your, your, yours is one of those fantastic stories that 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 is of its time in some ways, and yet it's kind of a classic rock band story where you did your own thing, you financed your own record, you put it together, believed in yourselves, and then had a little help from you know Bob Ezrin, who had come off producing Pink Floyd's The Wall when he met you. I mean, it was, uh, when you think back to that time, it feels like it all happened very fast, but I know I was saying my dad worked in the booking business, and uh, every bar band of that era had earned their stripes by the time a break, if they ever got one, came along. Well, that's true. We were, uh, when we got together, we wanted to write songs and work on being an original band. And then we realized that we couldn't get any gigs if we were just doing that. So we learned some cover tunes and we started playing in the clubs, but it it wasn't, um, we were never very good at learning verbatim these songs that we were playing. So we just did them our own way. And uh, if you listen to California Girls, for instance, from the Heat Wave show, um, it's in co- totally different than the way the Beach Boys did it or even David Lee Roth did it. And so that's where we hung our hat on was being an exciting band, doing cover tunes, but not doing them faithfully, really. Right. And you had a huge following, right? I mean, you had a huge following all around Southern Ontario. I mean, there was a time when a really good bar band was in heavy demand and could probably make a living doing not a great living, but still you were professional working musicians. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we were out there with, uh, Gatto and teenage head and, uh, you know, some of these other bands that were playing out at the time. And, um, you know, we, you'd get these six night a week kind of gigs and that's what you, you made your bones on and got good at what you were doing because, you know, you had to play that that much every night and that and every week by week, and you'd play in some of these divey hotels up north. And <laughs> yeah, I always remember the one where they had the um, the fire escape was was a rope tied around the uh, radiator. <laughs> so the idea was, I guess, the idea was to throw a chair through the window and then climb down the rope. <laughs> a classy joint, as they would say, a classy joint. That's if you could get out of the canoe-shaped bed that you had from all the other bands. Everybody's sleeping in the, oh, my word. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. So that's why we commuted a lot of these gigs. We would play six nights a week in Peterborough or London and commute every night because we didn't want to stay in the crappy accommodations <laughs> that they would provide for us. A wise, a wise, a wise choice, no doubt. Even, even, <laughs> even at a young age, a wise choice. And and then and then you decided. I mean, you already won uh, what would be called a homegrown rock contest, right? On Chum back in the sort of mid seventies under a different name. It was uh, yeah, it was the Serpa Serpa Sound Special uh, Serpa. I forget what that stood for. Canadian Independent Records or something. But it was with Jack Richardson. It was the uh, him put it together with some other folks, some other producers, and uh, 
It was in the actually uh, 1977 at the Toronto ex- uh, exhibition, and uh, they yeah. had like a they had like a, a like a plexiglass recording studio. So it was like fishing in a, in, in a fishbowl, you know, and everybody out there leaning on the glass. And uh, we're trying to you're in there trying to play your tracks and do some singing. And then they, I think there was a um, hundred entries or so. I forget exactly how many. Six hundred. Was there six hundred? Wow. That's how long ago it was. And it got down to the top 100, and then it got down to the top 10, and we won it. So it was the very first homegrown contest, and, uh, boy, the prizes were huge. Weren't they, Zero? Yeah. Well, yeah. No, no limos and recording contracts back then, right? I think I heard you mention it was lunch, if that. <laughs> we got right. lunch at the ports right on Young Street. <laughs> yeah, that was our, and, and a little And a little pretend gold record, you know, that uh, had our name on it, winners, you know. So, but, that, but that was a long time ago. They didn't, you know, that was uh, quite a while ago. And uh, but we've been going ever since. Zero and I've been working hard on, you know, trying to put together new songs that are good songs. The Kings are with us uh, this half hour. Zero and David Diamond, of course, you may remember the song "The Beat Goes On," switch into Glide, which was a massive hit. What's that? The beat goes on. There it is. Exactly. There it is. <laughs> Have you sang that one before? <laughs> Oh, we've done that a few times. Yes, indeed. Tell me about how that song came together, because you know, having you know, just having a hit like such an iconic hit like that is is a big deal, no matter what. But there, it's a medley, and and we don't hear a lot of medleys anymore, do we? Or a segue, I should say. A segue, right? Mm. Well, it was. Um, well, it all pretty much started with uh, like we had been writing other songs, but then we. Uh, we were playing in a peeler bar just outside of Hamilton, between Hamilton and Grimsby, Ontario. And at that time, I was playing some songs on six string guitar, and um, I play bass now all the time. But I was tuning the guitar, and I started going bong 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 bang 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 da 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 ding ding ding, you know. And Sonny said, "What is that?" And I said, "I don't know. I just uh, you know." But I remembered that when I went home. I remember that that you know and. Um, that turned into a sort of a name game song. Right. Yeah. It's funny. We just got an email recently, a comment about somebody who had watched the documentary, and Dave didn't mention the name of the club in the documentary. Right. Yes. The strip joint near Grimsby. This guy writes to us and says, that's got to be the Hunt Club. <laughs> Which, of course, it was the Hunt Club. It was. Jeez. Yeah. And so this guy remembered, and he remembered the the mobster gang that ran the place too. <laughs> and yes. so they had strippers and you know rock bands, and it was of course Hamilton is you know it was a tougher <laughs> it was a tougher town back then if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, it's all gentrified now. And, 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 then, so that, and then yeah, go ahead. So that first part of the song started, you know, da 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 da, and then uh, Zero had the idea about remember that name game song, you know. Yeah. yeah so then i just uh i thought well there hasn't been a name game song in a while and so it just seemed to be um a, an idea worth pursuing and so that led to judy and trudy and donna and tarana and that but i love tarana yeah, <laughs> I mean, there, was really, uh, there was really no official specific girl that we were talking about there was no judy or trudy or donna because everyone we meet says that's my song you know yeah <laughs> for sure donna and, and then and then where did the switch into glide 
part oh, come yeah. in because as I was mentioning earlier, we had a 45. My dad, we used to get, my dad was in the business. We used to get promo 45s at home. And I remember bringing home the switch into glide. I think I had an orange picture disc picture cover. Is that maybe my, it's, it's, it goes yellow. back yeah, or maybe yellow. And I remember playing and thinking, what an amazing song. So that's, I always remember that part of it because I guess it came out originally as just switching to glide, right? That was the original uh, piece thing that we put out on ourselves. Right. And it had, it had a, a small hole in the middle of a seven inch record. Yes. I remember and, it. Yeah. It the speed goes on switching to glide on one side at 33 and it had switching to glide on the other side at 45 RPM. So right. it's ah. a very kind of a thing yeah. and you can find it it's on uh youtube yeah. um, look for it to hear it it's it's very different it is i guess it is very different from from what would become the hit then because that was the one i was familiar with because that's the one i used to play at home on 45 um but then and then bob, bob ezrin comes in right and he's kind of this famous producer and he just digs what you're playing but he decides it needs it needs a little bit of a rework well, the thing was that, you know, the song This Beat Goes On was going on and on and on and on. I came up with that da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And Zero had the idea of, for switching to Glide, and it just totally made sense. So we wrote it as a segue, like that. And, and we were recording it at Nimbus 9 on our own dime, like you were saying. Uh, we had all our money. It was the middle of the night shift, basically. And uh, Bob had come in at one point earlier to visit some friends because he's from Toronto originally and he did a lot of work at Nimbus 9 studio in Toronto and he had just come back from recording The Wall with Pink Floyd and he came to visit the old studio and who happened to be in there was the old King Boys they're working on you know working on our own thing <laughs> you, and, did you know uh, who he was you must have recognized I mean he worked with Alice Cooper there I mean obviously you recognized him when he came in he was a Toronto guy we were busy working, I think, and I, right. our man, our manager at the time talked to him. Yeah, okay. and so they exchanged, uh, you know, pleasantries and uh, in a side room there, let's say. And um, then he gave him a tape, and Bob listened to it. And, like I said, I guess and took it home, and his kids liked the sound of what we were doing. He had younger younger children then, and then. He decided that, uh, you know, you got something, but you don't really know what you're doing. And he came back and he said, uh, this is really good stuff. But we got to start over. You know, and we, had, we had almost finished recording the whole first, the whole album. And he said, OK, stop, stop. We got to pick some things up and uh, see how it goes. And But that was the initial thing was that he agreed to mix uh, a couple songs. So we picked this beat goes on switching the glide for him to mix. And that's when he dove into the tracks one by one and said, you know, there's something here, but it's not enough. You don't know what you're doing enough. And there's something wrong with the song. That's sort of how he works is he'll listen to a song until it goes wrong. And then he'll say, stop. It's wrong. <laughs> this is not right here. So fix it. Yeah, he doesn't something. fix it. He gives it to you to fix. Right. So and he was, you know, at that particular time, it was absolutely right that it got boring at that point. There was something that was, wasn't right about it. He doesn't tell you, again, he doesn't tell you what's wrong. And so if he don't fix it, he goes, okay, well, that's these guys don't know what yeah, at all what they're doing. Right. But, hey, and you just come back from working with Roger Waters. And yeah, I know. Gilmore, that, right? Yeah. I know my brother. But we worked it out. We changed a few chord, chord progressions here and there, and uh, it all just sat 
perfect. It's the way that he had imagined, and yeah, that we, we didn't imagine until it it was there. And the, the so the structural arrangement of the chord pattern is different from the yellow single that you're talking about, right? Especially in the the speak goes the, on, the speak goes on, and right? Then, of course the melody got changed, the chords got changed, and then we rewrote the words to it so that it was more of a personal kind of fun thing with, uh, especially the B part of the verse. Uh, much more. I have lots of friends that I can ding in anytime. Yeah, so much all fun. Oh, it gets your blood moving. This is David Diamond. David, do the honors, please. Introduce me to your friends and cohorts. This is Zero on guitar. How do you do, sir? And the man behind you. Max Stiles on the drums. Uh, Max, nice to see you, sir. And over here on keyboard. That's Mr. Sonny Keys. Sonny, welcome. Are you all from Toronto? We are all from Toronto, except for myself. I'm from the West Coast, also, Victoria, B.C. It's great to be here in the States, though. We love it. We're delighted to have you here. Zero and David Diamond, co-founder of The Kings, are with me. Uh, we're talking about music in general, their rise. We're talking about their big hit, The Speed Goes On, Switch Into Glide, released back in 1980. Bob Ezrin, who'd come off producing Pink Floyd's The Wall. He'd worked with a bunch of people. He's been referred to as still one of those people who's just absolutely uh, a genius. Uh, and he was from Toronto, so he came in one night to a studio that he'd played at uh, Nimbus, I believe it was called. He had uh, worked there a lot. He came in one night in the late 70s, and there were The Kings playing an album or recording an album that they were paying for themselves and he liked it brought the tape to him, home to his kids they liked it and he decided i'll help out i'll work with these songs and the rest as we say is history so the song gets re- you're in la at this point right i gather there's a time where you go to la and everyone sort of starts to buy into the fact that this is actually a great record and the band sound is great and you know let's let's give it a go i think you know bob would be the first to tell you that everything that he does doesn't turn to gold i mean he's had a lot of hits over his career but but there was something magical about this beat goes on a switch into glide because when he took the tape rough one to LA and he played it for the this guy named Ken Batiste, who was the AR guy that signed us, the story goes that it was right on La Cienega Boulevard, the, the Electra office, and he had the window open playing the thing, and there were some kids outside that started dancing around on the sidewalk, apparently. Uh, because the beat of it is so good and catchy in that. And so Kenny Batiste thought, well, there's something here. <laughs> and, and not to mention the fact that Bob was sponsoring it, you know, with his endorsement, uh, you know, the number one producer in the world at the time, pretty much. And so they gave it a shot. And then that's when we brought it back to Toronto. We went into rehearsal, which I think a lot of bands don't have the luxury anymore to go one on one with Bob for like four or five weeks to to nail down every part and every song so that it was tight, especially the drums and the bass. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of wanted to maybe not use our drummer but we came up with him and we were kind of insistent let's work with uh, the guy that we have because you know we're a team and so uh bob was kind enough to really settle down uh with max our drummer and and make the parts as solid as he could get them and that's why the 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 album is so tight is because we did rehearse for a few weeks at a time and that, that just makes it a much easier process because bob's great at getting sounds the band is rehearsed and now you can go in there and and just record. Everything's good. Well, I mean, that's a big jump for any band at the time. And it was really, I mean, I remember back to those days and and just, you know, the Canadian music business was still, this is sort of pre-Brian Adams and Loverboy has, I mean, some bands have had big hits. There's the BTOs and the April Wines and 
the Gino Vanellis and the Dan Hills and the Andy Kims. I mean, there have been success stories in America, but not a ton of them. Uh, not not many. I mean, Canada's music scene was still pretty segregated at the time. And all of a sudden you find yourself sort of on the cusp of something pretty massive. You end up on American Bandstand of all places. I've watched it. And, you know, you're standing there looking, you finished your performance and here comes Dick Clark. That must have been quite the moment for 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 you guys. It was. It was uh, quite an amazing thing. And, you know, we only played the switch and the glide part of the segue because at the time, the radio stations thought that this whole segue was too long for AM radio. Right. It was uh, almost six minutes long. So Electra decided to just have the switch and the glide part of the song. So that's all we played on American Bandstand. Of course, later on, it did get at, put back together. The segue got put back together again. And the things really took off. And you really only get, you get two songs with a little interview segment in the middle. And so there wasn't really room to do the full segue. So we did what was going to be the second single, Don't Let Me Know, uh, as our second song in that performance. And we were on the show with uh, Nick Lowe and Rockpile. Cool in the gang. Cool in the gang. They were on the week before us. Wow. Like he, like he does like four or five shows in a day, or he did. At of the course, time. right. And they and the kids in the audience, you know how you see them they're all dancing and stuff. And they, well, each time they they would have a change of clothes, and the kids would all change their clothes, and then it'd be a different band. So right, it, so it looks like a different week, right? Next week, and then we go on and on for a full day like that. But um, but it was uh, he did the interview. They like he like we were Azura and I were in getting our getting powdered down for the you know for the the, the show, getting our makeup on in this big makeup room with full of mirrors. We're sitting there, and all of a sudden, Dick Clark comes walking in and sits down beside us in one of the makeup chairs. And he did, he did like he asked us a few questions about about the Kings and Canada and this and that. And as it turns out, when we go out in the little segment in between the songs, he asked us exact same questions. So he had already done like a pre-interview before we we didn't even know it was an interview. You know? Yeah. What a pro. What a pro Dick Clark was over all those years. Did you notice? I mean, the, the song ends up being. It's it's on Billboard for 23 weeks. It doesn't crack the top 40, but it, no no song lasted that long on Billboard back then without moving a lot of copies and being popular in a lot of places. You mentioned the part of the issue was that it stayed popular. It kept getting popular in different places at different times. That's right. And it was pretty much in every major market in the U.S. I mean, that was the amazing thing for us uh, to be, you know, in New York City and Boston and uh, Atlanta and Dallas and Seattle and LA and Milwaukee and uh, you know, know Chicago. <laughs> Chicago was huge for us, you know. So we were, but we were still Hicks from the sticks as far as uh, that goes. <laughs> here we are doing all the stuff, and and then we got in, and we started touring. Uh, you know, the first tour was ten weeks of almost every night, and so that was an exciting time. It was it's something you dream about. You know, and it's very hard when you get there to just to do all the amount of work that it needs to keep it going. I was talking to Glass Tiger a few weeks ago to Sam and Alan from Glass Tiger, and they were saying, I think their AR guy brought them out one night and said, you know, get used to never to not being able to sit back and enjoy this. In other words, like you're going to work, you're going to work every night and it's a lot of work. And sometimes I imagine it could probably be it could probably take a bit of the fun out of it in some senses. But I mean, you'd been you were used to playing six, six nights a week already. But that's a that's a lot of pressure. Plus, you're playing you were playing big arenas. You tell that famous Denver story with Jeff Beck, I think, in in the documentary. <laughs> tell me a bit about about the song's legacy because one of the things that's been most 
interesting about. I mean, there's a lot of songs make, made back then. I, I interviewed Martha and the Muffins not that long ago, maybe last year, because that's another one of those 80s songs that ended up being sort of a classic. They still play it in England. Your song still gets played for, at Milwaukee Brewers games. I mean, it has stood the test of time in so many ways. I think it was voted the almost official song of Toronto in 2018 by the Toronto Star. I wonder if you ever get bored of playing it, but it's kind of, it's it's almost bigger than the band now, the song. It's become something different. You kind of, I don't know if you lose possession of it, but it's it's something that's part of uh, Canadian history in many ways. I don't want to wax poetic too much, but it is. You love playing it, but the thing is, you sell people, well, you're in a band, they go, oh, do you have anything? Yeah, who are you? Who are you? And they go, the well, I'm song, Switching the Glide. Some of them get it. From, nobody knows who the Kings are. Switching the Glide, some people might know that, but then you play it for them and everybody knows that yeah, so knows. that's the difference right so we talked about too what they should have on their marquee when we play is switching the glide the kings <laughs> instead of the kings with switching the glide they put it the other way around is, is that a blessing or curse or both as a band that's a blessing oh yeah right. oh it, when it's, we feel great when we play it every, everybody you know, everybody in the crowd sings it sings along with us and uh and like i said again there's a donna over there and uh and, you know judy and they realize oh yeah you know and they go hey they love it so much that how can you not (laughs) love that they love it you know and that's the other thing see so all the other songs we play have to at least be somewhere in that league you know somewhere to uh, prop up that ourselves with that with the rest of our you know ability of writing songs because we do write some good songs was it even your i've I've talked to bands before who say well it wasn't even our favorite song you know, I mean, everyone loves it, but it wasn't even our favorite song. You know, we we, we appreciate and admire its success, but we've got other songs we thought were just as good, if not better. It's certainly our probably our best song. I mean, it's got all of the, all the great songwriting ingredients in it, from guitar hooks to melodic hooks to lyrical hooks and keyboard hooks. I mean, it's just <laughs> every ten seconds there's another catchy little hook, and so. That's what you know, Bob Ezrin was getting at. That's what Bob Ezrin okay. was getting at, right? Like, keep it going. You got to keep the whole thing going for the well. Six minutes is a it's a six minute song, which is long, but yeah, keep it going for the keep keep uh, keep the listener interested in it because it does. Uh, it sounds great. I was listening to it last night. Obviously, it sounds fantastic. Well, we a friend it's of ours, and Bob Stroud, who's a DJ in uh, Chicago, he's been on the air there for for forty years. But he was working at WMET, and he said he got it. He was transferring the vinyl onto a cart, you know, those little eight-track type yeah. tapes play at radio yeah, stations. He says, you know, as soon as I heard it, he says, I got hit ears. I knew that was a hit from the get-go. You know? <laughs> and, and, of course, when Switching to Glide was released on its own, uh, yeah. it didn't get much traction. But when they put in This Beat Goes On, Switching to Glide, with that lick that he sang earlier, the phone started ringing right away. Well, and that's, that was in the day when DJs paid attention to the phones ringing. Of course, now there's hardly any live DJs anymore, <laughs> yeah, right. which is another thing. But or phones, <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. But were you surprised? I mean, the Cherry Pop and Daddies did a remake of, of of Switching to Glide, right? They didn't even do the other part of it. Actually, there's a, another band. Somebody sent us a video just a little couple of weeks ago. There's a three piece band north of Chicago playing in a bar. And it's it's kind of like ZZ Top playing our song. Yeah, or the they, three piece band, no keyboards, but the guitar <laughs> players playing all the parts and uh, great singing. They do it really well. Yeah, you know, we so, both were going, "Wow, this is a good band." I mean, we've heard many different versions of it. There's all kinds of terrible ones, and uh, yeah. some are good. But this one actually was like the she said, as it was a ZZ Top version of Switch It Sort of. Yeah. 
tons of versions on YouTube if you go searching for them, including some lousy ones from us too. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still, I mean, people can still see you, right? If they, they if you're out, I mean, you're out, you're still playing. Yes, we are. We just played in New Brunswick a couple of weeks yeah, ago. We just, Fredericton, uh, before that, we did a, a short Southern Ontario uh, tour, a four, four date with, uh, with uh, Honeymoon Suite. Oh, great. And we yeah. have a new album, you know. We have a brand new album, The Longest Story Ever Told, it's called. And uh, it's getting a lot of uh, activity, a lot of action. Yeah, and, uh, and it's it's uh, the best thing we ever did as far as uh, consistency and uh, quality all the way through. We worked really hard on it. Any favorite but, memory? Any favorite memory from back then? Like, is there one one gig that always stands out to the you as a band? Where you say that was that was our that was the night. Well, I think that the, the, the Heat Wave he- show is is pretty good because despite the fact we're dressed funny, <laughs> everyone was dressed funny in nineteen eighty. Yeah. yeah, but there was like 55,000 people there that we played for. And it was uh, that was uh, quite an exciting, amazing thing in Toronto at the Kingswood concert in uh, at the Wonderland Amusement Park was with uh, uh, the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys had us on stage with them. You know, our drummer sat up and sat and played a few songs with them. And uh, it was uh, quite an amazing thing. <laughs> it was great. Uh, there was a lot of calisthenics in those shows, too. That'd be hard to keep up. She and I look at each other and go, how did the heck do we do that? You know, <laughs> the, the knees aren't quite what they were. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, For all of us. <laughs> For all of us. Diamond David Zero, I, I really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to seeing you. Hope you. Hopefully you make it out to the West Coast. Bye-bye. You. Take care, everybody.